one of the reasons that I run a lot is because part of my identity is actually being, you know, fit, healthy and active. And where your identity is aligned with some of the behaviours that you're displaying as a leader, that can really help to ensure that you show up consistently in the right way. Hello and welcome to Run the Business, the podcast that explores the place where running and leadership come together. We'll find out how running can help us with leading, connecting with people and generally being better in business. We'll also try and answer that question, do runners make better leaders? I'm Anthony Gay and today's guest is someone who first learnt about leadership through tennis coaching. She spent time as a lawyer and now coaches CEOs and other senior leaders through her business Sport and Beyond. She's written a book recently out, Staying the Distance, The Lessons from Sport That Business Leaders Have Been Missing, which I can't wait to hear more about in this conversation and see how running might feature in her story as well. Catherine Baker, welcome to Run the Business. Thank you. It's an absolute privilege to be here. How are you today, Catherine? Very well. Quieter Monday than normal, which is good. Uh, looking forward to a very nice long walk and pub lunch with some friends later on. It's quite an exciting time for you, isn't it? Because the book is fresh out and you, you're kind of having conversations around uh, the, the book. Tell me how it's how it started. Gosh, in terms of actually getting around and thinking about sort of writing the book. Yeah. Yeah. Where did it come from? So a really good question. And I think what I'm discovering is that, you know, a lot of people believe there's a book in everybody. And actually... I really didn't feel that. I'm not somebody who always felt I definitely had a book in me that I was always going to write a book. But I think often these things happen a bit subconsciously, don't they? So I have, over the last few years, hoovered up so many of the books on leadership, particularly the ones around sport to business or sport to leadership, because obviously that's very much where I sit in my sort of working world and my interests as well. I got to a stage... Uh, it was sort of a couple of summers ago now, so summer 2021, where I really felt that I had um, something to say, something that was different and that there was a, a, a real need. And that really, the final catalyst was a train journey that I was on. I lived just outside York and I was going down to London. It was just at the end of the first lockdown when actually we were allowed to travel. So it was OK that I was on the train. And I was sitting there quietly in my carriage trying to get up, get on with some work. And I overheard and sort of couldn't stop myself listening because it was so on point. This conversation between two women, one slightly older, one younger. And the younger woman was saying something along the lines of, you know, it's just so relentless at the moment. I feel like it's so full on. I'm exhausted all the time. The team I lead are also exhausted. The pandemic has just thrown up so much uncertainty, so much change. It, it, it's exhausting. And the older lady sort of came back and said something along the lines of, yeah, you know, it, it's just not sustainable. Really, we should be treating working life as a marathon, not a sprint. And this is very much an enforced sprint. And that conversation was so important for me because it was really that area that I was thinking that we were missing from all the great books that there are from sport across the business and across the leadership, but really being missing a trick around sport showing us not how to perform, improve and achieve, but how to do so over the long term in a way that's sustainable and that ensures that we can consistently deliver when it matters. So that was the, a sort of real catalyst. Um, as I said, probably there were uh, steps along the way that I hadn't really recognised, but that I think gave me the real confidence to feel, yes, definitely got something that I want to say and something that I think needs to be said. And it's been a learning journey ever since. Tell me about where sport started for you then, because I know you had two passions when you were growing up, didn't you? You were a tennis player and you played hockey. So what did they teach you at the beginning? Yeah. Um, so, so to take it back a little bit, I mean, I, I'm a twin. So my twin and I were numbers four and five in the family, the unexpected numbers four and five. And, and the joke from when we were very little was that my twin would sort of sit sedately and calmly, whatever we were doing. And I would be sort of pushing and straining and desperate to get out of my, you know, pram or push chair or whatever. Um, my mother always says I, I would always run rather than walk. You know, why would I walk anyway when I had the option to run? So I was a very, very active, sporty child. Think growing up in a family of five as well, we spent a lot of time outside playing games. 
made up a huge amount of sports that, you know, were, were quite unconventional. My two older brothers in particular were very good at that. And then as I went through the sort of school system, started to play more conventional sports and really loved it. And as you say, started to hone in on two in particular, tennis and hockey. When I was 12, actually, it was suggested to me that I should choose between the two if I really wanted to make it um, in one of them. I, I couldn't because I loved hockey for the team aspect, you know, being surrounded by friends. When you won, it was winning with other people around you. That connection, that feeling of community that I absolutely loved. Tennis, on the other hand, especially singles, which I played most of, gave me that sense of independence. You know, it's up to you. You've got to make decisions on your own. It's make or break depending on how you perform and how you show up on the day. And I really love that aspect as well. So I think, you know, there's so much anecdotal evidence, isn't there, around what sport gives us. But there's an increasing amount of research actually demonstrating the skill sets it gives us, gives us as we move through into the working world, the impact on physical well-being, mental well-being, etc. Fundamentally for me, I have always just loved playing sport, being outside, being active. When our, we've got three sons, when our children were little, I always said that I needed to have two things with me at any time. One was an apple, so that if any one of them got hungry, I'd give them an apple. And the other was a tennis ball, because wherever I was with the kids, if we were delayed somewhere, if we were waiting, if we were in a doctor's surgery, whatever, we could catch and throw or roll a tennis ball. And um, yeah, it used to cause quite a lot of laughs from my friends. That, that was always my, uh, my go-to. That's great advice for, for young parents, isn't it? A, a, an apple and a tennis ball. <laughs> uh, now, you mentioned you're in York. Uh, this podcast is obviously about the relationship between running and, and leadership. But I know there's, there's lots of stuff that we're going to talk about that is relevant across the board. Uh, when did you last go running? What's your relationship with running? Yeah, so I last went running yesterday, which is a good thing, isn't it? Um, bearing in mind the podcast. I, I love running. As I said, I love being active. But for me in particular, running as opposed to the other things I do, like play tennis or do my HIIT workouts, what running gives me is time and space. No phones. I don't have any trackers or any sort of tech with me. I don't even listen actually to podcasts. I listen to podcasts when I walk, which is also every day, but not running because I love the fact that I can completely zen out. I don't run for, for sort of that far. I normally do about a four-mile run, probably three or four times a week. And what I tend to find is that to start with, my brain is normally quite active. I'm thinking about things in particular. It could be logistics stuff, you know, at family admin or a sort of work conundrum. But what I then discover is that it's suddenly 15 minutes later and my brain has kind of gone somewhere else without me really realizing not only, I think, is that very healthy and very beneficial, but what I find is when my brain kind of comes back on tap, I'm actually thinking about things in a very different way. So suddenly I'll have ideas about something that I didn't even know I was thinking, you know, that aspect of our subconscious really working hard while we're in that sort of mindful state. So for me, that's a big part of running, that space, that escape, that thinking time. I also... Um, find or feel that staying fit and healthy is very important. Um, as I said, we've got three sons who are now 22, 20 and 17. Uh, I've just turned 50. And for me, you know, sort of success in the second half of my life is very much staying fit and healthy so I can really enjoy the second half of my, my life, sort of be there for friends, be there for family. I've got this dream in terms of tennis of being world champion at over 80s because I'm the only one still able to stand on the tennis court. Um, <laughs> So, so it's definitely that aspect as well in terms of, you know, the, the, the desire to keep fit and, and healthy for as long as I can. Let's talk about some of the things that you've been uh, learning from the book and including in the book. And, and something somebody said the other day, which resonated with me, which I think I've heard before, but I hadn't heard it for a while. Sport is the greatest classroom in life. And I, I just thought that's so that's so true in terms of as particularly as you're growing up, you can test things out, you can try things, and you pick up so much that will then aid you later in life. Um, is that something as you've sort of gathered things together for, for the book that was part of your thinking? Is that something that you agree with? 
Absolutely. And in fact, the book starts, well, obviously with a forward from Gareth Southgate, but then the first bit of the main book is a quote from Mel Marshall, who is coach to Adam Peaty. And she says pretty much exactly what you've just said, Anthony. So she says, I always describe sport as the university of life because you have everything, extreme challenge, success, defeat, times when you make super progress and other times when things go stale. So absolutely, I firmly believe that sport has so much to teach us. There is a lot of insight, research, discussion, literature, etc. that already tells us that. A lot of it historically has possibly tended to focus on high performance in the moment or winning. And I think that's one of the reasons I was very keen to write this book and where I felt there was a gap. That there are some brilliant lessons from sport, not just on, you know, that sort of high performance in the moment or how to win, but actually how to deliver sustainable performance over the long term. You know, if if I think about my different hat, so uh so someone who has played a lot of sport, both sort of grassroots and representative and, you know, is pretty competitive. Uh, I've managed one of my son's local rugby teams for, for years from when they were sort of age four through to age 11 and then back, back again through the pandemic. I've had the fortune of coaching tennis at all sorts of different age groups and, and people. And then, of course, the fortune through my second half of my career of working with and alongside so many elite coaches, so many elite athletes. And it, it is the cliche, but it is absolutely true that it's more about the journey than the outcome. In terms of, yes, we want to win. Yes, we want to get the results. And that's what we're aiming for. But actually, the journey that you go through, the learning that you take on board through that, I think is where the gold dust really lies. One of the quotes I also share in the book comes from Martina Navratilova. And I, I won't get it exactly right, but it's something along the lines of the moment of victory is too short for it to be about that and nothing else. Mm. So I think there are, and you know, it's one of the things that I draw out from, from the book, particularly in the chapter looking at how to find sustained motivation. There's been um, an interesting piece of research that's very well known in the world of sport that was done in the Rio Olympic cycle, so between 2012 and 2016. It was called the Great British Medalist Study. And they wanted to try and understand what it was about elite athletes that really sort of set them apart. You know, what, what was it about their makeup and their background and the way that they approached things that enable them to achieve the success that they did. And they had 32 athletes um, in, into 16 pairs. And in each pair, they had what they called a super elite athlete and an elite athlete. So the super elite athlete were the ones who were winning, you know, Olympic medals, gold medals, etc. The elite athletes were maybe making the Olympic team, making the world's teams, etc., but perhaps not winning those, those medals right at the top. Mm -hmm. And they looked at what were the commonalities between those athletes and what were the distinctions. One of the distinctions that was particularly interesting was this focus on uh, mastery or sort of process and outcome. And they discovered that the super elite athletes had actually much more of a focus on mastering their sport, on being as good as they possibly could be, you know, as well as the outcome. Of course, that's what they're aiming for. That's what the ultimate goal is. But that focus on the process and the mastery as they went through, whereas for the elite athletes, many more of those 16 elite athletes focused on the outcome rather than the mastery. And I think that's one of the really fascinating distinctions and why what sport has to teach us is so much about the process you go through, the journey you go on, as it does the actual winning and losing at the end. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that consistency in, uh, you know, a leader or an athlete's approach to their, to their task, how important is that, is to be consistent with your actions? Uh, I think incredibly important. I've, I am... Um, uh, follow on that chapter, how to find sustained motivation with how to bring the required discipline to the table. Motivation can go up and down, can't it? You know, we'll have days when we're feeling motivated, inspired, whether it's about our role as leaders or whether about it's about going to the gym or going for our run. But actually, you know, you need more than that because for the days when it's you're not quite feeling it, what is it that enables you to still show up in the best way possible in order to fulfill, to fulfill your role as leader or, or as an athlete. And that's where discipline comes to the table. And that's where that consistency that you've just picked up on there, Anthony, is absolutely important. So what, what, what feeds into that? 
building habits. Um, there's a you know, huge amount of research and insight around how important it is for us to build habits, the best way to do that and to make sure that that really drives sustained performance. It's a bit like if I went from you know, not going to the gym to suddenly expecting or wanting to go to the gym five days a week, you know, that's unlikely to be sustainable, is it? So it's building up sort of small, easy to achieve habits and building on, building on. So I think that's one aspect of consistency. The other thing is really about our identity. So one of the reasons that I run a lot, as we picked up on earlier, is because part of my identity is actually being, you know, fit, healthy and active. And again, where your identity is aligned with some of the behaviors that you're displaying as a leader, that can really help to ensure that you show up consistently in the right way. So if I am a leader who really cares about my people, who makes sure that I listen, who makes sure that I demonstrate empathy, who makes sure that I provide direction and clarity for the people that, whom I lead, all of that in terms of those being part of my identity is going to really help ensure that I show up in a consistent way. And the people that you surround yourself with are so important as well, aren't, aren't they? In that identity, choosing people that inspire you and, and people that are supportive of you. I mean, it, it's easy uh, to say it, but actually that's such a critical thing, isn't it? Surrounding yourself with, with people that help you be the, be the person that you want to be. Absolutely. I mean, the thing that comes to mind straight on that is that distinction between radiators and drains. Um, you know, with all of these these distinctions, you've got to be a little bit careful because it's often more nuanced, isn't it? And there can be all sorts of reasons why people are possibly sort of sapping energy because they're going through difficult times. But as a sort of very generic statement, it's quite useful to think, are the people around you radiating energy? Are they those radiators or are they those drains? And actually, one of the things I pick up on the book is, is quite interesting around this because sometimes there can be seen to be a bit of a, almost a tension between the need and desire for diversity within our workforce, which we all know is not only the right thing to do, but actually beneficial to performance as well. So that need and desire to have a diverse workforce sort of versus the uh, importance of having values within your organization, which everyone can get behind, which they can align behind and support. And it's one of the things that I tease out in the book, because I think sometimes this tension can get a bit confusing for people. Where, where it comes down, and again, there's some very interesting insight around this, is that within your organization, it's very important to have people who really do support your values. So let's take a Netflix, for example. Netflix are very, very clear about the values that they're looking for, their DNA and how they go about things. And do you know what? If you're not aligned behind those, then that's okay. It's just that Netflix isn't for you. So very clear on that, the alignment behind those values. Within that, however, obviously very, very keen on having as diverse a workforce as possible. To bring that back to your question, I think, you know, if you can align yourself with people who do support and, and, and naturally live the values which you do as leader and which your organization does, I think it's going to make it a lot easier to see that sustained performance. You must, uh, I know you work with a lot of different companies in, in, you know, your business. What do you see as some sort of traits at this point in time, post-pandemic, as, as how companies are handling that, that challenge of, of leadership and motivation and bringing teams together in this slightly different sp space and uh, probably, you know, a slightly different mental space as well as some of these things that have been brought to the forefront are more important in our lives. You know, from your experience of, of working with those leaders, what, what are you seeing? Yeah, it's a really good question, Anthony. I think there's probably two areas that I'll draw out with this. The first is around belonging. So one of the challenges that we've all had through the pandemic and then post-pandemic in terms of the way that everybody is now operating, you know, hybrid working, et cetera, is how do you build that sense of belonging within your organization? Why is it important? Well, not only does research and insight from the world of sport show us how important that human connection and that feeling of belonging is. But actually, there's been some interesting research from sort of corporate world as well. One of the pieces that came out from McKinsey in 2021 was looking at um, why employers felt people were leaving as part of what was termed at the time the Great Resignation and why employees were actually leaving. And 
generally the distinction was that employers felt it was for transactional reasons. So things like, were we not paying them enough? Were they not getting bonus? Were we working them too hard? Um, and relational reasons. So employees saying, actually, it's about things like um, a sense of purpose, feeling valued. And in this particular piece of research, 51% of those leaving said it's because they didn't feel a sense of belonging. So I think mm. that sense of belonging is absolutely critical in the workplace. It's what can give organizations that uh, sort of point of difference, that competitive advantage in terms of recruiting, retaining, and getting the best out of your people over the long term. The sort of things that can help, very clear sense of identity. Um, there's a fascinating story that I share in the book from London Pulse, one of the Super League um, Vitality netball teams, um, a, 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 about creating a sense of identity and how important that is. So, you know, that's that's one area in which you can work on. Also, it's about chunking down the connections between individuals at work. So if you lead a team, make sure that everyone in their team is having regular touch points with others in the team on one-to-one, one-to-three group size, as well as sort of teams as a whole. So really focusing on those touch points around human connection. I think the other area that's of particular note post-pandemic is this issue around empowerment, ownership, sort of trust of the workforce. Again, I think partly drawn out because people are working remotely more than they were before. And therefore, how can you make sure as a leader that the right things are being done at the right times and people are, you know, getting on with their role? And I actually finished the book with the chapter, How to Navigate the Ownership Conundrum, because I think this is fascinating and just so relevant at the moment. And my, my big question to myself was, can what we see in sport actually translate across into the world of business, where in sport, coaches will talk about making themselves redundant, really transferring ownership and autonomy onto their athletes. And there's some really good stories in, in the book around that. One of the, the particular pieces of insight that really struck home for me and that was very relevant to this question was actually around a group of Norwegian cross-country skiers. So... As you can imagine, Norway prop normally does pretty well in the Winter Olympics. But cue yeah. national disaster in the 2006 Winter Olympics in Turin because the Nor Norwegian cross-country team came seventh. <gasps> not only did they not make the medal table, but they came seventh. So absolute sort of, yeah, national sort of, you know, he head in hands, etc. So they put together a crack team of all sorts of people to try and work out, you know, what had gone wrong and how to make sure that this wouldn't be replicated and that they'd get back to where they should be sitting in the medal table. And one of the things that came out from this piece of work, was, which was absolutely fascinating, was that about 80% of the time that cross-country skiers are doing their training, they're either, um, it, it's, it's very much self-directed, either because they're so far away from people, because obviously the miles they have to cover in their training are just you know so, so many for cross-country skiing. Um, or because yeah. their coaches just couldn't be with them. So they they identified that as that sport in particular, athletes had to be self-motivated and self-directed. What they then found looking at the data, they got all their um, skiers to sort of keep their own journals of their training, etc. What they found was that those skiers or athletes who were able to take responsibility for their training tended to do better. The bit that I found particularly interesting, though, is that it wasn't just those that took responsibility for the training that, that were more successful. It was those that also owned the outcome. In other words, you might get a set of skiers who said, oh, I'm really happy to be in charge of my training. I don't need anyone to tell me what to do. Leave me to it. Not a problem. But then actually when they didn't deliver, when they didn't do very well in events, they'd go, oh, well, it's not my fault. It's because the coach wasn't around, you know, didn't give me enough input, whatever. Mm. Whereas those who were willing to take responsibility for the training and own the, and own the outcome were the ones that generally were going to do very well. Translate that across to the world of work. And I think that parallel is incredibly helpful in terms of we know that ownership, empowerment, autonomy is very good from a motivation point of view anyway for people at work. We know that people tend to engage better when they have that sense of ownership. There's lots of research and literature around that but actually making sure that they also take ownership of the outcomes 
is where you're probably going to get the best results. Mm, makes total sense. In terms of the book, are there any uh, athletes, any runners uh, or coaches of runners that you um, use as, uh, as reference points as, as case study? Yeah, so a couple. So the first chapter, I referenced Dame Kelly Holmes, which was a complete joy to do. I'm actually a trustee on the board of the Dame, of Dame Kelly Holmes Trust. And she's someone who's always been such an inspiration, not least again, because her journey was very far from straightforward. Um, that's the first chapter, how to find your confidence sweet spot. I abhor the term imposter syndrome. And so I use that uh, term instead, how to find your confidence sweet spot. And that chapter really looks at um, how you can go about making sure that you stay in that zone of belief and confidence that you can achieve with a constant recognition that you need to continually improve and build more tools into your toolbox. The reason I start with Kelly there is because she will often say that one of the keys to her success was actually running with men because they were bigger, faster, stronger, and she always had to keep up. So not only did that push her, it meant she was comfortable challenging herself and being out of her comfort zone and also comfortable and familiar with not always winning. So mm. that was the first runner. The second runner, uh, 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 amongst other areas that she competed in, was Jess, Jessica Ennis-Hill, Dame Jessica Ennis-Hill. So again, a real privilege to be able to feature her. Why did I feature her? Well, actually, in the chapter that draws out this amazing superpower that Jessica has, and I'm sure, uh, had, and I'm sure still has, um, it, you know, her story, I think, is incredible in terms of the pressure and the focus on Jessica around London 2012. She was the face of the games, wasn't she? Everywhere yeah. you look, there was her face on buses, on billboards, etc. Can you imagine that pressure on your shoulders and coming out to deliver? But actually, that's not her most impressive superpower. Her most impressive superpower was her ability to really focus and prioritize her time. So Jessica was known for turning up to training, able to remove from her mind everything else that was going on to absolutely pay full attention and focus to the training session, on the training session, and then once that was over, to move on to the next thing. In the build-up to London, as you can imagine, there were so many demands on her time. And what Jessica was very, very good at was absolutely being clear on what she should be saying yes to what she should be saying no to, and prioritizing her time. The other thing that she and many athletes do very well, and it picks up on something you referenced earlier about having the right people around you. You know, Jessica had an amazing team around her, like lots of these top athletes do, coach, physio, nutritionist, psychologist, etc. What What I think someone like Jessica can show leaders in business is that that clarity on your role and understanding what it is that you have to do, what your lane is, is absolutely critical. Jessica wouldn't try and be her own physio. She wouldn't try and be her own nutritionist. She had experts around her for whom those were their roles. And I think one of the challenges in leadership is that we often perhaps bleed into other areas, whereas ensuring we keep that focus on what is it that only I can do what is it that my role is? And making sure we stick to that can really help uh, make sure that we absolutely prioritise our time and focus on the things that really matter. Were, were there any surprises uh, when you were doing the research for your book? Anything that struck you as, oh, I, I didn't think, think that was the case? I think, yeah, I'm going to pull out uh, quite a well-known story here around Chris Hoy. But I learned something through researching it properly that I think showed me that there's a lot of misconceptions around this story, and I was probably guilty of them. So Chris Hoy was one of the first athletes to take on a sports psychologist. He took on a chap called Dr. Steve Peters. The misconception, I think, is that he was not successful. He was not doing well. You know, he wasn't a great athlete, and so he reached out for help. And in particular, um, the, the story which I share in the book and, and which really drove Chris Hoy to reach out for help was around world championships in Stuttgart in 2003, where he let his emotions, emotional brain take over his rational brain and didn't perform the way he wanted. The surprise behind this story, though, is that, do you know what? He was already a very successful cyclist. He'd won the world championships one kilometre time trial the year before, and he'd won a silver at um, the Sydney Olympics. Why I think that's important to draw out is 
there can be uh, a feeling that we only reach out for help. We only look out for experts, draw in support when we're failing. Chris was actually already a very successful athlete, but there was an area that he knew he had to work on in order to really have long-term sustainable performance. And that was how to leverage the power of his emotions. So rather than getting hijacked by them, how to leverage the power of his emotions. So that's why he reached out for help. And my goodness, did it have an impact on him having an amazing, you know, long and successful career. So I think that was probably um, a, a lovely thing that I discovered through through the book and which is very translatable across into leadership generally. That's such a good point because, and I was going to come on to that actually, the idea of sport being so emotional, not just for the fans, but for the participants and, and the feelings that it brings up inside you. Leadership is a space that for many years was considered a space where you, you know, management leadership, where you didn't show emotions, where you, you know, you were strong and you led. But thankfully, over over the recent years, that's become uh, it's become a different thing where actually showing your emotions, being vulnerable is OK. Is that something that you've seen in your experience change? And, and can you see the, the benefits of people opening up more in, in business? Definitely, but in a bounded way. First of all, to, to touch on the emotions, I think, um, yeah, there's definitely been a tendency in the past, hasn't there, to sort of brush emotions under the carpet, say the mental side of things, you know, isn't, isn't relevant. So why, why bring emotions into the workplace? Why bring the mental side? And actually, even sports journey around realizing this has been relatively recent. Um, there's a story I share from Dan Carter, an all black in the book, saying, you know, when he was first training as an all black, they reckoned it was just if they trained physically harder than everyone else, they were going to win. You know, it was that straightforward. It, it was that sort of one dimensional. Uh, and obviously they went on a, on, on a journey around realizing how important the emotional state uh, is to performance. And I think on that, it's not just recognizing that we have emotions and that they are relevant to, you know, the workplace, but actually making sure that we leverage them to really drive our performances is something which I look at quite a lot in the book. The issue around vulnerability is definitely there, and, and I touch on it quite a lot in the chapter around how to build trust. So it's definitely, um, you know, an aspect of leadership which is talked about a lot now. You know, there are some concepts now like vulnerability, authenticity, et cetera, which have become uh, much more prevalent in terms of what you read about and what you see. And there is very strong evidence showing that demonstrating vulnerability can help to build trust, which then can drive performance. However, I, I use the, the term bounded vulnerability with the sort of, sort of headline answer to this question. Okay. I think we have to be a little bit careful that there's a great story um, which comes from a lady called Brene Brown. Now, some of your listeners may have heard of Brene Brown. If not, do look her up. She's an American author and speaker, and she writes a lot in this area. She, she's she's, she's um, you know, very impressive. And she writes a lot about vulnerability and trust. And she was on a podcast with Simon Sinek, who's another well-known uh, American mm -hmm. author on, on leadership and trust, et cetera. And she said, shares this story where she was delivering a talk in Silicon Valley. So um, investors, you know, invest into startups in Silicon Valley. And those investors are very keen to make sure that their leaders operate in the best way. So they will parachute in Brene Brown to give a bit of a talk and a bit of support and advice to these CEOs. And she gave her talk. And at the end of her talk, one of the CEOs came running up to her and said, you know, that's blown me away. That was the best talk I've ever listened to. Thank you so much. When I get back to work on Monday morning, I'm going to call a town hall meeting. I'm going to bring everyone together and I'm going to stand in front of them and say, I don't really know what I'm doing. Um, you know, uh, I, don't, I, I don't know how successful this business is going to be. I'm really struggling, et cetera. And, and, and Brene sort of says, says her jaw dropped. And she was like, what bit of my talk were you listening to? Because that's absolutely not the message. And she said to this individual, you know, people will have moved states to work for your company. You know, they've got mortgages to pay. You can't stand up and say this to them. And, and so she went on to talk about this, this, this um, area of brown, bounded vulnerability, which, which I love. So in essence, there's definitely times, opportunities, moments where sharing a bit of vulnerability is really important. It necessary for you as an individual, if that's what you feel, but also important for those you lead in terms of building trust um, and driving performance. But do it in a bounded, measured way. Mm. So standing up saying, you know, I've got this job because these are my credentials. 
Um, I'm really excited and I believe that we can achieve this. We haven't got everything right and I don't have all the answers yet. I need to get a great team around me. I need to build some more tools into my toolbox. I need to make sure that I get the best out of you guys, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that's okay. That's demonstrating vulnerability, I think, in a, in a bounded, sensible way. Do you think time is something which is on people's minds a bit more these days, as in the time frame that they put on to succeed? Because um, has the last few years taught us anything about the long game? You mentioned it's a marathon, not a sprint at the beginning. And I'm just trying to understand uh, how people can set expectations over what's what's important what and what's uh, achievable in, in, the, in the near future. And, and something that's on my mind with, uh, I mean, I've got young kids who can want everything there and then and their their patience for things uh i'm sure you've seen it in in business as well as as sort of got shorter uh in terms of when they demand stuff how how do we factor that into into our leadership and our and our, our work this sense of the long game that we're in but also the world becoming very sort of driven on on hit in, in the moment I mean, that's a very complex question and because my brain is going off in so many different directions. <laughs> I think, no, it's fine. I think, as ever, it's probably best to start with your own experience, isn't it? So let's start with the personal. Um, I, you mentioned a little bit about my background in the introduction. So my first qualification actually was a tennis coach. And then I had a complete pivot and went down the route of corporate law. I was very fortunate to be sponsored through law school by Linklaters, which is known as a magic circle firm. So one of the sort of big global firms. And, you know, an incredible start to my career. I trained there, qualified into the corporate department. I got six months out in Singapore, including a month in the Bangkok office. You know, an amazing start to my career. It's, it's it, not an easy area of law to qualify into. It's quite relentless. Client expectation is understandably very high if you're doing a merger or a takeover or a stock exchange listing, etc. So, um, that's the area of law that I enjoyed. I learned loads. I was surrounded by you know, incredibly successful, driven, high-performing people. My husband was a lawyer as well, and we wanted to have a family. So I sort of moved to a different firm and carried on being a lawyer for a few years and then changed my role again. And um, then we moved up north, and I was trying to commute down to London to carry on my job. And, you know, it was just balancing too many things and something was going to give and it was probably going to be the wrong thing that gave unless I took a proactive decision which was actually to stop being a lawyer and to have a few years where I work part-time I, I look back at it and call it sort of treading water um, but I made sure I did roll so I taught on the law degree at York University I delivered safeguarding training to tennis coaches for the LTA I was doing stuff which kept me challenged which meant I was learning new skills but it was definitely a bit of a pause in terms of career and ambition and I and I am an ambitious person and I had to keep telling myself it's a marathon not a sprint this is the time when my energies need to be focused slightly elsewhere I need to be leaning into a slightly different area of my life i.e my young children and you know what in a few years time you know that will change and very fortunately for me that's how it's played out and I've been able to you know, lean away from the children who the age that they are, quite frankly, they want very little to do with me hmm. um, and, and back, back, back into sort of professional life. So I think one of the things I see from the generation that my children are as well, you know, 22, 20, 17, is that they do see perhaps their careers as not being the one dimensional um, sort of, you know, you start at the bottom and you work your way through years and years to the top of whatever it is that you do. They see it, I think, as being a bit more piecemeal, a bit, let's do this, let's do that. I, I know, again, that's a very general statement, but that's what I'm sort of seeing and hearing from them and their friends and, and what you read. And, and again, I think that feeds into, um, you know, a marathon, not a sprint. And if you take it back to the principles of, am I continually learning? Am I striving and making sure I'm surrounding myself with the right people? Am I giving myself possibly some short-term goals? Because they can be quite useful, can't they, in terms of focusing our energies? Yeah. Do I have clarity around ultimate sort of why and purpose and aspirations? That can be very useful as well. doesn't necessarily have to be too specific. You know, I want to be a CEO by the age of 50. It doesn't need to be that, but something along the lines of, I want to make sure that I'm making a difference, adding value, running an organization that I really care about, etc. 
So I think it, but that's probably a bit of a, um, I've probably jumped around in that answer a bit, Anthony, because I think that's such a, a fascinating and complex question, but hopefully that shares a bit of insight that people can take. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I know I put a lot in that question. Do your goals, I mean, you mentioned about sort of adjusting as you go through life. Do you feel your definition of success and your goals is different now from, from when you were, yeah, 20? Five or something. I mean, I, I, I guess it is. But how, how, how does that sit with you? Because as we get older and our, and our goals in life shift, absolutely. And I think, I think, as I mentioned earlier, you know, definition of success for me in the second half of life is, is sort of fit and healthy. But I think on in the workspace, yeah. one of the things I put myself through a few years ago was actually to really understand what my personal mission was going to be for this, you know, time in my career. Um, I'd had a very good friend who's a CEO of a FTSE 100 business who had been to Harvard for six weeks. He'd taken six weeks out from his role to go to Harvard, which was a big thing. And when he came back, I said, so what did you learn? And he said two words, inspire breakthrough. And I was like, you've been on the course for six weeks and you've learned two words. Um, mm-hmm. But it, the point was that it was really about as he was moving to a different stage of his career, what was his sort of personal mission going to be? I couldn't get mine down to two words, which still slightly annoys me. Um, but mine is to inspire belief and enable progress. So to inspire belief and enable progress. I use that as a frame of reference, actually, for everything I decide to do or not to do now. So within my day job, mm-hmm. obviously, um, coaching senior leaders, that fits very nicely. And it's not just about giving them that belief, but it's giving them the practical tools and tips, et cetera, to, to you know, get better in their jobs as leaders with my non-exec role, so on the board of the Dane Kelly Homes Trust. And I also chair um, an organization called O-Shape, which is sort of really leading change in, in the legal sector for the better. Um, and, and one other non-exec role I have, again, I've taken those on because it very much fits within that. So I think, um, you know, 20s, 30s, absolutely, you've got to be, I believe, trying to build up your skill set you know, it's more about hustling then, isn't it, really? Whereas when you get to the stage that I am very fortunate at 50, it is about thinking, okay, I've got a certain level of expertise here. I've got good amount of experience. I've got good perspective. Where do I want to add value? Where do I want to make a difference? And in particular, who are the people I want to be helping? Um, uh, And so I do quite a lot of mentoring and always think very carefully before I take someone on is the fit good? Do I feel I'm the right person for them? But also, do I feel they're really going to engage in this and that they really want to sort of learn and listen? In that case, it's worth me giving my time. Who inspires you, Catherine, in leadership? And where do you get your energy from? So having listened to some of your previous episodes, Anthony, I'm going to cheat if that's all right. That's okay. Yeah. Because I know most I know most people only give you one in terms of who inspire, but I'm going to give you two, if I may, partly because it's a man and a woman. So I'm actually going to start with Gareth Southgate. Um, very, very, you know, privileged that he wrote the forward to my book. Very privileged to know Gareth. I think that not only is he an exceptional leader, but the way that he leads in sport actually transcends sport and carries across into the business world. The traits that Gareth demonstrates, the way that he's gone about his role, I think everybody can learn from whatever sector you're in. So that will be my number one. My second one, if I may, is actually Baroness Tanny Gray-Thompson, somebody who clearly had a very, very successful sporting career, like Gareth did before he moved into coaching. But, you know, with Tanny moving across into into the Lords, into sports administration, with some of the non-exec roles she's had, it's been so much about grassroots and about activity and about inclusivity I have, again, the the good fortune of knowing Tani and the way that she goes about things, her manner, the way she builds relationships, the way she's able to influence people, um, I learn huge amounts from. So, yeah, both of those. Fantastic answers. Uh, To finish, three questions to finish up. Uh, Let's bring it back to running. Can you tell me about a run that you did? Uh, Maybe it's a run near you in York now, but a a run that sticks out in your mind as a, a special place or a special moment in your life. Castle Howard's 10K. Okay. Which I did probably uh, maybe 10, 12 years ago. So I, you know, as I said, I don't run generally more than about four miles, but it was that period when the children were younger, I'd leaned out a bit from work and I needed a challenge. So I decided I wanted to do a 10K. I had done 
the Great North Run um, in my 20s, but hadn't sort of done distance running since then. Why does it stand out? I think because it was a beautiful route because I really enjoyed the training and I was really pleased to get a good time. You know, it just enabled me at that stage of life to get that real competitive instinct out and to just run mm. as, as well as I could. So, yeah, I think that that's my answer on that one. Great stuff. Uh, running aside, can you name a business tool, an app, maybe even a person, something that you couldn't do without from your business side of things? So I'm. This is going to be really dull. Apologies. Email. People have said email before. You know, it's, it's yeah. It, and it's it's. I think it's email is taking a is having a bit of a resurgence. Let's say. But but you go ahead and answer first. Yeah. Well, okay. So so thank you for that reassurance that I'm not being sort of totally dull. I, when I first started as a trainee lawyer at Linklaters in the city, email was just you know just becoming um, acceptable and in frequent use. And, you know, we used to joke that people were starting to email rather than popping into the office next door, you know, so actually it was almost that danger of email that's stopping people having proper conversations, whatever. I, I do think now, though, it, for, for me, I, I love it in terms of efficiency, in terms of connectivity. I do all, always make myself think, right, if I've been emailing someone for a while, let's make sure I pick up the phone and have a conversation. But that ability to communicate in that way, the fact that it, you can do it when suits you, um, as I'm saying this, I'm thinking it's really not that exciting, is it? But it just, for me, it's just really valuable. I was having a conversation with somebody the other day and they talked about how email, it's a bit like letter writing from uh, decades ago, where if you sit down and write a personal email to somebody um, and take time to craft it and it's to an individual, receiving that can be very special because we both we all get so much rubbish in our email these days and and the space, it's been abused on, on such a huge level that when you do get those personal, well-crafted, written emails from somebody that isn't nearby, it's actually really special again. So maybe it's maybe there's something in that about, you know, taking time to reach out to somebody. But I also agree with you around uh, different ways to connect with people. Some, some you know, people uh, take messages on board and, and receive things in different ways. So actually a phone call, a video call, an email, you know, small groups, big groups. I think you mentioned that earlier in the conversation that mixing it up Make sure that you you connect with uh, with people in in the best way, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Business aside, uh, what's your favourite bit of, of of running kit, or I'll expand it to sports accessory for you that that you can't do without something uh, in your fitness world? A tennis racket. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's I knew simple. that was coming. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I think your 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 suggestion of always carrying a tennis ball around with you is also fantastic, uh, which uh, I, I kind of really, I do it a bit with my son, always have it in a pocket somewhere so I can kind of pull it out and throw it around. But I think that's great advice as well. Uh, so a tennis racket and a tennis ball. Um, final question, what advice would you give to anybody uh, in a business or a leadership role who's listening to this and considering getting more active, maybe not becoming an elite sports person, but somebody that wants to just get more active, specifically take up running. Uh, but, you know, from from your experience, what is it going to help give them in leadership? Yeah, so I, it's a great final question, Anthony. Thank you, because it's absolutely fundamental. And I think it reflects such a shift these days. So back in the day, even in elite sport, you know, there used to be this view that well-being and performance were at opposite ends of the spectrum. You know, we focus on performance. We don't worry so much about well-being. What elite sport has now understood is that well-being under, underpins performance. And it's the same in business and the leadership space. So what, when I often hear from people, I'm so busy that I can't do X, Y, Z. You know, I can't go for my run. I can't go for my morning walk. I can't go to the gym. A, that always frustrates me. B, I immediately ask that individual to flip it. I'm so busy that I must make time to go for a run, go for a walk, go to the gym, etc. That you know, the working lives that we lead now, we're on so much of the time. We're facing uncertainty. We're having to adapt and be agile all the time. And so I think understanding that well-being underpins our performance and that the busy you are, the more you have to focus on being fit and healthy, the better. And I think there's one final leader example I'll share on that. Jim Ratcliffe, actually. Jim Ratcliffe, you know, of Ineos. I listened mm -hmm. to an NFT conversation with him and, and, you know, he was asked that question. You run a, you know, a multi-billion pound organization. You've got fingers in so many pies. How do you, 
how do you stay on top of things, you know, not feel overwhelmed, et cetera. And he said, it's very simple. I go running around Hyde Park for an hour a day. And I just thought that was such a good answer. If someone like him can find the time to do that, we can all find the time to go for a run or, or whatever our chosen activity is. Absolutely. Great way to finish. Catherine, thank you so much for your time. Uh, the book, Stay in the Distance, is out now. I'm, I'm sure people can get it wherever they get their books. But is there anything that I've missed that, that uh, you want to add in terms of how people can get the books or connect with you? No, absolutely. So wherever, the usual places, um, Amazon, always a good one. And Amazon reviews are very helpful in profile of the book. So if you do buy the book and enjoy it, please consider doing that. Um, my website, sportandbeyond.co.uk. But um, a real privilege, Anthony, to be able to talk to you. Thank you for asking such good questions questions. Thanks again to Catherine Baker for her time on Run the Business this week. A bit of a different episode with Catherine's wider experience of sport and leadership, but still so many good takeaways there that might help us raise our game in business and in running. Discipline and consistency was the theme that came through for me. How can you create small, easy to achieve habits that you can then build on. Uh, doesn't matter how big they are to begin with. It's just about doing them. And when they become a habit, how can you add something else in the mix to take it to the next level? It might be meeting people in a certain place or just getting out running. It's just doing it is the most important thing. She talked about aligning your identity with the behaviors you display as a leader to help you show up consistently in the right way as well. It's no good saying that you're an open door approachable person if your door is always shut and people can't get hold of you. You've got to be the person that you want to be. I also like that section on ownership of performance, but how ownership of the outcome is even stronger. Taking responsibility for things that happen. That is a strong, strong sign of a leader. If you've got kids, remember the apple and tennis ball. If you don't have kids, I think an apple and a tennis ball are great things to take out with you anyway. Uh, if you've enjoyed the conversation, if you're enjoying Run the Business, the podcast, please share, like, comment. It all helps. If you're going to go out for a run soon, take us with you. Tell your friends, uh, tell your colleagues, tell your network about what we're doing with the podcast. I would really, really appreciate that. I'm Anthony Gay, and until next time, keep running and keep chasing your goals. Yeah.